Have medical schools neglected part of our education called emotional literacy? I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and this is Reach MD Book Club. And with me today is Dr. Pauline W. Chen, a liver transplant and cancer surgeon and author of Final Exam, a surgeon's reflection on mortality, a New York Times bestseller that is being translated and sold in dozens of countries across the world. Thank you, Dr. Chen, for joining me. Thank you for inviting me to be your guest. To begin with, why the title? Ah, I had a hard time coming up with a title for the book. And so I sent a couple of the chapters and the introduction to a very close friend of mine. And she came up with a title. She's an amazing, amazing woman. She is an artist, a teacher, and a person who has an exquisite sense of storytelling, of narrative, and who herself has been a patient and suffered through a difficult chronic illness and is suffering through a difficult chronic illness. She was an inspiration um, through parts of the book. Well, then let me go just a little further. There's a subtitle, A Surgeon's Reflection on Mortality. Who's mortality? <laughs> you, you really understand the book. Um, both my patient's mortality and my own. And it took me a while to understand that, which is why I laughed when you asked that, because... It was very interesting, the whole process of writing the book for me. It sort of just came out. In fact, the first chapter on my cadaver from medical school actually spilled out in almost full form over one afternoon. It happened after I finished my training, and I was driving along the Pacific Coast Highway in California, and... I was there, you know, the sun was sort of shining against my window, the, the, the front window of the car. And so, you know, I was a little bit blinded, but I could see my hands on the steering wheel. And when I looked at my hands, I saw a tan line from a ring that I had been wearing. And suddenly what came back was the hand of my cadaver and the tan line on her ring finger. And I tell you that because that was sort of the first hint of the whole mortality theme of the book. You know, after that happened, I began, I took one of the first things I actually did after I finished my training was to take writing courses at UCLA. I took a couple of writing courses. And you know, I kept writing these stories, and at that time they were these very, very thinly veiled fictional short stories, but they were actually my own stories um, about patients. And I realized over the course of writing these that a lot of them had to do with death. And I have young children, and so I often think of things now, my analogies, my metaphors and similes often have to do with childhood things. And so, you know, I think about, it, it was a bit like putting a puzzle together and, you know, you do the borders of a puzzle first and then you sort of fill it in. And so when I realized with the help of some of my writing teachers that 
a lot of these stories were actually not fictional, but real life experiences, and that a lot of them had to do with death, I began to see, you know, that was sort of the outline of the the border of the puzzle. I began to fill it in, and I realized that what was happening was I was grieving about patients I had lost, about their mortality, and about my reaction to their mortality, the evolution of my reaction to the mortality from the time I was a medical student until the time I was a fully trained liver transplant surgeon. So I wrote the book um, with the support of a wonderful spouse and family, and it wasn't until I had finished the book and had read through it, you know, for the umpteenth time and had had some close friends and mentors read through it that I realized that this was actually more than just my patient's mortality that I was grieving over or that I was thinking about or just reflecting on. It was my own mortality. So you got in touch with some feelings. And in, in my first introduction, I've always been struck that in my medical school class, there were people who emotionally seemed to be way ahead of the other people, that there was an EQ, an emotional quotient, and that some people yes. got it and others might never get it. Do you believe that this emotional literacy can be taught in medical school? Oh, that's a very interesting question. I think what we need to do better in medical school, I mean, I think that there are some really amazing people out there that are doing this, but I think what we can do better, I think we're fully capable of doing better, is not suppressing whatever emotional ability people have going into medical school. What is concerning to me is that whatever emotional ability these students go in with, what tends to happen, and, and, you know, I saw this in myself, what tends to happen is over the course of those four years of medical school and the, you know, three to nine years of training afterwards, is that you lose touch with that part of yourself. You suppress it. You, it becomes, you know, it, it disappears. And sad thing, and I think this is one of the subtexts of final exam, is that it happens and you're sort of cognizant of it, but it's not until you sort of, until you get out of the, the incredible crush of training that you begin to realize that, you know, you lost something along the way and that finding that thing is really difficult. I mean, for me, it took the whole writing a book to realize that, you know, part of what I was grieving was my, my own mortality and my own loss of who I was when I entered medical school. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD Book Club, and I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Pauline W. Chen, a liver transplant and cancer surgeon and author of the best-selling book, Final Exam, A Surgeon's Reflection on Mortality. You began this book with the relationship you developed or lack of relationship with your cadaver. And our audience have all had this experience, and I shared it with 
Pink, Petty, Pencil, and Pickard. He, there was the four of us, and uh, uh, p- people in, in when I went to med school, everything was done alphabetical. One person held the book, and another person had his gloves on, and at the end of the year, you threw your clothes away, you threw the books away. But, but I thought, after reading this particular part, how helpful it might have been if there was a narrative that we artificially developed for our particular cadaver, that this was a person, a father, a mother, a child, a school teacher, a policeman, and because HIPAA certainly would not allow us to have any more exacting information, but if we had an artificial story to our cadaver that it was a person, that if you began this way, that this idea of personhood could continue on. I, I, I got that feeling from reading your book, and I wonder how you'd respond to that. Yes, I think I think it would have helped, and I think it does help. You know, it's interesting because I was just reading uh, an article recently about the way anatomy is conducted in, I believe it's in Thailand. It was a, a country where the religion was primarily Buddhist. And the belief was, the, the belief that many of these students had, were taught to have, was that the cadaver was their teacher, which the cadaver is. I mean, the you know, there are so many colleagues that I talk to who remember the, who remember what their cadaver's kidney looked like, what their cadaver's heart looked like, you know, the sensation of going into anatomy class. And so the, the cadaver is our teacher, but in this culture, in this country, the students were very explicit about it, and they referred to their cadaver as their teacher, and they continued to refer to their cadaver as their teacher. And at the end of the anatomy course, the families of the cadavers, the families of the people who had passed away, and the medical students would come together and have a ceremony that to show respect, to, you know, further respect for this gift that th- this teacher had given them. I thought that was a really beautiful uh, way of approaching it. I know that more medical schools now, certainly many more than when I was in medical school, do have ceremonies for students at the end of gross anatomy where, you know, they can, you know, depending on what they are inclined to do. They can read a poem, write a poem, perform a musical piece, do something in honor of their cadaver. And I know that a lot of families whose, you know, loved ones donated their bodies attend those ceremonies. So it's a it's it's a healing thing. It's a moment to reflect on the enormous gift that these people have given us. The the rest of the book continues with many other parts of development in your educational process and on ours, and you deal with treatment having become, in the 21st century, a metaphor not for only uh, love but for hope, and that dying is failure and to stop treatment is defeat. What do we do about this idea that has permeated not only the medical profession but our our culture and our patients? You know, I think that being more cognizant of it helps. I think that the current efforts in end-of-life care, in palliative care, the current efforts of, you know, people in those fields have been incredibly helpful, actually, in that regard. You know, one of the things that, you know, I, I find it very interesting to speak 
to colleagues who are from different generations than I am. And so, you know, because my generation, I mean, if you look at liver transplantation, for example, when I trained, you know, we fully expected, you know, 80% of our patients to survive five years. I mean, survival was expected. But what was interesting for me and what's always interesting for me is to talk to physicians who trained a generation or two before me. So again, if you look at liver transplantation, you know, when they were first doing transplantation, it was amazing if a patient could live a year. And so their sort of their expectations, their way of dealing with death I think was much more, they're much more comfortable with it than my generation was. Now, if you talk to younger doctors, and this I also find interesting, you know, people who are at the end of their training right now, chief residents, let's say, and, and again, I find it really interesting to talk to these young people. These, this generation, they are the beneficiaries of some of these incredible initiatives by people in end-of-life care and palliative care. When you talk to them, they are incredibly comfortable with the terminology, the you know, advanced directives, saying things like that, talking about pain control and suffering and hospice and you know, all of those things, things that when I was a resident, you know, I did not have the vocabulary for. All I knew was DNR. That's all sort of, that was my extent of end of life care. So I think that there is hope for change and that I think things have happened already. That being said, I still think that we have a long way to go, but things have changed enormously and I think they can continue to do so. Yeah, I think maybe what you're describing is that your generation is beginning to think more about how do I want to be treated when right. I'm that patient? Right. You know, there are some really interesting studies in that regard, talking to physicians and what they want, you know, at the end of life, you know, right when they come out of training versus, you know, 10 or 20 years down the line. Absolutely. Your own life experience has a lot to do with it as well. Yeah, I think it's important that we all begin to embrace our feelings and to remember there's a lot to do when nothing can be done. Absolutely. I want to thank you today for joining us and discussing your very thought-provoking book, and I really recommend it to everybody out there to get it. Thank you again, Pauline, for being with us. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. This is Dr. Maurice Pickard, and if you've missed any of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash book club to download the podcast and many others in this series. Thank you for listening.